Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of a very special guest, we cover John Carpenter's 1982 sci-fi horror classic, The Thing. Now let's stick a wire in the blood and find out which one of you is a thing. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, happy Halloween, man. So in celebration of Halloween, we watched The Thing, and we actually had our first special guest. Yeah, we uh, we had a nice conversation with Mike Arnzen, uh, horror writer extraordinaire, teacher at Seton Hill University. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I had a great time talking to him. Yeah, I was so happy he came on. He was very knowledgeable. He really knew his stuff, and it was just fun to have his energy with us. Yeah, and, and that conversation, we had so much fun doing that, that it went long. And uh, so we were faced with a conundrum, and we decided rather than cut it down and, and lose a lot of good content, we'd split it into two parts. So this, this episode's going to contain part one of our, of our conversation with Mike about the thing, and then we will follow up with a part two uh, that we're hoping to drop on Monday, right before Halloween. So before we get into our conversation with Mike, we just wanted to take a second to talk to you about Audible. So we do have an Audible affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that link, you get yourself a free 30-day trial and one free credit for a novel. Yeah, and since it's Halloween, I thought we'd talk about a spooky title. Uh, That's Max Brooks's World War Z. The reason I bring this up is it's a fantastic audio book to listen to. So World War Z is... If you like, say you watched The Walking Dead and you were curious, like, what's going on on the rest of the world, not just Atlanta? That that's what this book does. It shows you an entire planetary view of what's going on during a zombie apocalypse, and it does it by breaking it into all these little, like, almost short stories. And what's cool about the audiobook is you have a cast of readers, which includes Nathan Fillion, Simon Pegg, Mark Hamill, all these kind of guys, Martin Scorsese are reading sections of this audiobook to you. It's one of the greatest audiobooks I've ever listened to, and it's a good book. I mean, I love all of those personalities. All of those people are great. I did see the movie, and I read some stuff online about how different the book is and how the, it's almost unadaptable Like to, to, to turn it into a film. Like maybe a TV show would have worked better, but it's like very, very different from the film, right? Yeah, and, and I, I've actually heard rumors that they're maybe going to make a sequel to the movie. Um, or I'm not really sure what all the details of that are, so it could be something we cover in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I, the audiobook's great, and and it's it really shows what they can do with this form. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and that's uh, World War Z by Max Brooks. And if you're going to listen to that, make sure you go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Get it for free. Get 30 free days. All right, we'd like to welcome Ink to Film's very first special guest host, the man who mentored me during my MFA in writing popular fiction at Seton Hill University, Michael Arnzen. Mike holds, count them, four Bram Stoker Awards and an International Horror Guild Award for his disturbing and often hilarious fiction, poetry, and literary experiments. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy Halloween. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you taking out the time, Mike. It's my pleasure. This is one of my favorite movies ever made, so I'm eager to talk with you guys about it and hear what you have to say. So that leads me into our, our kind of leads me into our first area that I wanted to talk about. It's it's one of your favorite films. So, what are your experience with the film? Did you did you see it when it was in theaters? Do you own it? Is it something that you watch regularly? I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there, James. Before you get into that, I want to hear: Did you read uh, Campbell's novella first, or did you see the movie first? personally i did not read it first i mean i was uh to be honest i saw the movie in the theater because i snuck in i think i was underage and i snuck into the r-rated uh showing of the movie 
Nice. Uh, and I think I might have even done it two or three times because I loved it so much. And <clears throat> it was just so wild, you know. <laughs> I've never, never seen a movie like that before. And, and, and I, you know, I was a kid in the 70s, and my dad used to always take me to the horror movies with him because my mom wouldn't go. So he, he was taking me to all these classic R-rated golden age 70s horror films like the exorcist and things like that traumatizing the hell out of me but uh so you know when i when i moved to colorado later in my life with my mom i was just like compelled to go see these things i wouldn't wasn't allowed to go see i, I would break into the movies you know <laughs> you know i'd buy a ticket for a movie over here and then i'd go over to the john carpenter movie in the other theater um, so to me, right away, it was kind of like seeing something I wasn't supposed to see. So that just added to the whole, the whole thing. And ironically, the whole movie is about seeing, isn't it? You know, like you can't believe what you're looking at. The whole thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a good, uh, good intro for, uh, what we do on this podcast. We, uh, we, we take projects of, uh, like book and film combos and we read the source material first, usually. Um, uh, and then we, then we watch the movie and talk about it. And we, we just released our uh, novella episode last week, and, and this is the movie episode now. Um, so for anybody who maybe this is their first episode, that's the kind of thing we do. Yeah, it's funny that you say that, Mike, because I, I've had so many similar experiences to that as, as, you know, sneaking into a certain movie you weren't necessarily supposed to see. Or, I mean, like you say, it, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to have seen this for the first time in theaters. Like, I didn't see it till till much later, obviously. And, like, even so, it's so it holds up in every way. I mean, we just saw it, and that's actually that's actually what I should ask you guys. What did you? We we all saw it recently. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was I, I'm revisiting a movie I saw. I think the first time as a kid as well. Um, something about this movie, apparently. Uh, I think my older brother showed it to me when I was probably like 12, and I remember it was it was super disturbing and but fun too, you know, and just like the idea of being in this uh, camp in the Arctic and there was something exciting about that too, adventurous and the same, at the same time as being terrifying. And, uh, that really held up for this viewing for me. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it last night too. It's still in my head. Uh, the effects stand up, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but even though I'm there, you know, there's no CGI involved with all that, but, uh, the way Mike Bodden did the effects is just still stands the test of time, you know? Uh, yeah. Legendary. It's unbelievable, man. It's, 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 I can't even looking at what they were able to do and, and just thinking that all the man hours that went into it and all the craftsmanship, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's incredible filmmaking. Yeah. And, and just when you think like, Oh, that's a model, suddenly a tentacle will come out of its mouth and it'll drag <laughs> itself across the room, you know? So it's the way they put them in motion. And so the carpenter and the effects crew are, really working together in sync on this movie in a remarkable way. I, I think all movie makers want to reach that kind of, like, you know, it's just working, you know, kind of like a band working together live on stage. It just it gels, you know. And, and mm. I think that comes across in this movie. <clears throat> it makes it a really strong, strong movie. The other, the other thing that I kind of was thinking about afterwards was just the pacing of it, you know. A lot of that's the editing, but there's a lot of running around and, you know, quick pans where you see another character running and, you know, it just starts right from the beginning, chasing that dog with the helicopter. It's just always in motion. And, and then it, it'll slow down and stop. And then, you know, you start to get paranoid at those moments. So <laughs> it, it, it's really pressing the, uh, the thriller buttons, you know, the suspense yeah. is, is really well done. Even though I've seen it a million times now, I, I still was like in it, you know. That was one of the things I mentioned in our novella episode where I said I thought that was something I, I found was lacking a little bit in that novella. It seemed to be more interested in the in the bizarre science it was proposing and the nature of this creature and less interested in creating dread and suspense. And I, that's where this movie comes in in spades and, and turns that up to 11. And I think it really benefits from that. Oh, yeah, I could totally see that. I mean... Uh... Campbell's more of a science fiction writer, you know, and right. you could tell he gets uh, fixated on the, uh, the the technology. I mean, even the dialogue is kind of you know weird. The best yeah, part of that, the best part of that novella for me is like the, just the description of the sounds the thing makes, you know. Uh, yeah. But but plot wise, it's it feels almost too long, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it feels a little. Yeah, I I agree with that. <laughs> um, Whereas I, I wish the the movie version of the thing was longer, you know. <laughs> Yeah, 
I, I agree. Actually, I do agree, but we should talk about that at the end and maybe in particular spots where we found that maybe it, it did feel a little rushed. Um, speaking of the classic nature of this, you teach a course about horror movies in particular, or you're going to be teaching a course. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I haven't taught this horror film class since I was back at the University of Oregon, so I'm really excited to do it again. Uh, where I teach at Seton Hill University, uh, we don't really have a film program, so we fit it in our English major whenever we can, and it just so happens everything came together, and I'm going to be running a horror film class in spring term, so if any students are listening to this, please sign up. I want you in there. Uh, I would love to take that course. So yeah, I mean, I took, I took, I was kind of in a similar situation. Our, uh, the University of Florida didn't have like a specific film program, but I was able to craft my own with like a film and media studies minor and production major. So uh, we had a lot of those those things going on. But those classes were, I mean, vital in helping me understand film in different ways and and really teaching me like the different aspects that that. You, you don't really get unless you take those classes. So I highly recommend it to anybody who's listening. Take that class. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, Arnzen uh, was my mentor when I was at uh, M, uh, getting my MFA, and I was able to take a bunch of modules with you. And I can definitely recommend any, any class you can take with him. Sign up for it right now. He's, he's a fantastic teacher. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I just get excited about sharing things, you know, and and. and talking about the things I'm reading usually in an English class but but with film like you you can learn from it live right there just by like deconstructing a scene or freezing the you know pausing the, the image and just picking mm. apart the mise-en-scene or whatever and <clears throat> it's just really it's live teaching in a way that I, is unlike anything else and I think that might have been part of what James was speaking to it's like you're seeing it for yourself and you're talking about what you see with other people live and I mean, I guess that's part of what you guys are doing with the podcast, right? It is. I, I think that, yeah, if you like that kind of stuff, I think this is a podcast for you. Um, speaking of breaking down scenes, this movie starts off with a flying saucer crashing into the into the earth. I had completely forgotten that scene. <laughs> it's so right. good, too. Honestly, one of the best title cards that I in, in my memory. It's such oh, a good yeah. title card right after the flying saucer falls in. Yeah, it's great. I actually watched the special features on the Blu-ray where... The guy who made the title cards explains how he did it. Um, I can't recount exactly what his methods are, but it's all, you know, analog. You know, he like cut out the letters. Then he put a space behind it where he used a black plastic bag that he draped behind the lettering. And then behind that was something, uh, you know, like a black or blue screen. And then he set fire to the plastic bag so that, and, and then there was smoke in front of it too, so that the light of the flames comes through the lettering and kind of gets cast in that spooky mist that's in front of it. And that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. That's like the kind of inventiveness and, and craftsmanship that like films during this era had. And and sometimes I worry that certain films are losing that. I mean, there are there are films today that, that are holding up to that standard, but some just like the because everything you can do it in a computer now some people are are falling away from that and that that it feels so real when when somebody puts that amount of craftsmanship into a title card where they had to do it all like you said analog and practical it seems like there's been a kind of a renaissance in the um you know physical prop department like it's been coming back and i i think filmmakers who use cgi as like a tool in the tool belt rather than the only tool are are going to benefit from that Definitely. Yeah, totally. I, I think some of it's due to just production companies and studios and whatnot, uh, or just be independent filmmakers feeling the financial pressure and the time pressure, and so they they kind of just opt for what's quick and easy. And mm. but there's a whole art to the whole digital side too that shouldn't be sure. you know uh, cast aside. It's good. It's still in development. I think you know. Yeah. I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the Tarantino and Rodriguez movie. Uh, uh, Grindhouse. Yeah, Grindhouse. Sorry. Um, yep. You know, they put so many digital effects into that movie to make it look like, <laughs> you know, you yeah. took sandpaper to it and shit. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, they could have done that for real and probably saved themselves time and money. But uh, they were playing with that technology. And, and I mean, that movie, maybe it doesn't always, uh, you know, seem as f fake as, as a lot of the other CGI shortcut yeah. moves. That Yeah, there's, I mean, uh, uh, Mad Max Fury Road is a really good example of that recently where everything was actually done and most of the CGI was was like making the making the backgrounds look amazing and like adding color and 
So like there are ways to use it that can augment the thing that you're showing on screen that actually has a presence to it. Um, but I think we're getting in the weeds a little bit. Let's get back to our movie. Um, we, we, we come in and we got, we got a, a helicopter chasing a dog, right? <laughs> I, now as a dog lover, this always got me. Like I always, like even now knowing that the, that the dog is, that is being chased is a monster. I still am like rooting for this dog. And I'm like, I, I, like, I don't know. It's a really interesting way to play with the emotions there. Cause if you're seeing it for the first time, you don't know that you're like, what are these people doing? Yeah. It's funny. Cause I was going to mention this. John Carpenter was somehow able to make me fear a, a lovable looking dog, you know, and just the, <laughs> the dog acting in this film is on another level. Yeah. It's, I mean, just by sitting still and moving slowly and staring at things, I was, you know, you get a little creeped out mm-hmm. by that, by that dog. And, and I don't know who, who to thank for that, but that person, whoever trained that dog did a great job because that was all, you know, that they had to train the dog to do that stuff. And it, it all was like really creepy and real yeah there's a scene where the helicopter gets really close to that dog or at least it looks like it does and that that's all real so that was pretty amazing that's true yeah and i I, with that scene i remember just one brief moment where the the dog kind of stops in his tracks and turns and looks back at the helicopter and that moment shows intentionality like you know it's aware that it's being chased as opposed to just running away from gunfire you know um Mm. there seems to be a lot of that too where it's like the the dog is is waiting when when they're coming back. We're get, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the the dog is waiting and looking out the window when when certain characters are coming back from locations and things like yeah. that. Like it's got a. They, a I think they kind of turn it. the knob up on it over time, right? Like they start to add more and more of scenes of the dog doing something that's unusual for a dog to do. But yeah, that is the first the first hint of it. I think anytime Carpenter cuts to a shot where you just see the dog. You know, we're asked to think, what is that dog thinking? What is its motive, yeah. right? And, you know, and the, it's all reaction shots, really. So it's, it's interestingly uh, constructed to give that, the, the thing, a characterization in the dog before we even have met the thing. You know? so, uh, it's so smartly done. <laughs> so going off the dog for a second, um, when we first meet McReady, he's playing chess with a computer, and he, pour, he pours himself a glass of Jim Beam, and then he's playing chess, and then he pours the new glass into the computer, destroying it. And I was like, "Oh my god, so many, like, so many bad things are happening right now." <laughs> I mean, it's like, did did he really think that nobody else would want to play at some point on this like deserted like base that they're all trapped on? You don't think anybody else is going to want to play chess in a little bit? He was that angry that he had to pour down his Jim Bean. <laughs> I mean, it's a character, it's a character moment, I guess. Really, right? It totally is. Like he's the rebel, right? And- yeah, drink. He's drinking like a Western star kind of thing, but he's also rebellious against technology, and you know that I, it does build his character. But maybe the themes of the movie are right there too. You know, playing chess with this alien that you don't know what, what is what, and also I would add with the audience. I think the yeah. film is constantly playing chess with the audience, and we're trying to outsmart Carpenter and crew uh, the whole time. And then at the end, it's a stalemate, right? So I think it. Spoiler? Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Full spoilers for the movie, in case you didn't get that. <laughs> it's been out for like, you know, 30 years, 35 years. 35, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, a lot is happening there in that moment. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of the physical against the, uh, you know, the technological or, or the scientific. Yeah. And he's, re- well, he's refusing to play the game, right? Like he's, 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 he's essentially flipping the table on the game. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which he kind of does later, uh, with uh, with with some of the some of the, what he gets into at the end there. So basically, this this helicopter that's chasing this this dog through the snow ends up at this U.S. base, and it, they're shooting at the dog and throwing grenades down, which I thought was really reckless, mm-hmm. especially near a base. And eventually, they land, and because of the explosions, all of the crew from this uh, U.S. Science Institute run out, and the dog comes up and starts licking this one guy in the face and the people who were chasing him down get out and start walking over with a gun and then they start shooting at them the people they assume and somebody gets shot i think it's yeah. george george gets shot and he goes down so everybody starts running away and the dog starts running towards the the building the commander kind of is like waiting in the wings he's up in the building and as this guy gets closer he's speaking another language so they can't understand what he's saying and I actually looked it up, and he was saying, like, 
in Norwegian, I'm assuming he he was saying like for Norwegian audiences, they were they were watching and they knew exactly what was going on because he was speaking legitimate Norwegian and saying like stay away from the dog. He killed my whole crew. We got it. You you can't let him into your facility. Really? He pushes up towards that's the cool. base. Isn't that isn't that crazy? Like that's that's cool. It seems like it would ruin the movie a little bit. Like he, the suspense <laughs> is lost. Like oh, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he chose not to use subtitles at that moment. Yeah, exactly. Smart. And if if you're one of the people who gets that, you just get like a cool moment of knowing something that you know that the characters on screen don't know. So from the building out the window, the commander Gary shoots this combatant in the head, and he goes down. And we have a situation where everybody's trying to figure out what was why these people were. They they actually find out from the side of the the helicopter that they're Norwegian and why they would be in their area and why they were chased. They don't even necessarily realize that they, the dog was being chased. Yeah, I, there's a moment um, when they first get off the helicopter, there's like a slapstick comedy moment where he goes to throw the grenade and he like releases it and it flies backward into the snow and he has this moment of like, oh no, and then he runs away and then the other guy tries to dig after it. And I remember seeing that moment and like it was kind of funny, but like it felt a little odd like tonally for the movie. And this made me think of like some of uh, Carpenter's movies I don't like as much. And I feel like this is the kind of stuff he gets into a little bit more where it ruins the movie a little bit for me when you start getting this kind of like silliness going on. And I'm glad that there's not a ton of that in this movie. Right. Uh, yeah, it goes against the survivalist kind of mood, you know. The... Well, and it's not serious, right? Like it's, a, it's like a silly moment in an otherwise serious film. Yeah. Uh, but there has to be human weakness and, you know, frailty yeah. in here to the point where sure. we are stupid. We do destroy each other, you know. It's just like war is being commented on in this scene too, right? Like there's even a, you cut ahead to a couple scenes and, you know, one person, person says, well, maybe we're at war with Norway, you know, who knows? They're so isolated. Right. Uh, and, but that is what we're seeing is this inability to communicate is what leads to violence. And, you know, that, that's a theme of the movie, I think. Uh, the whole sure. role, role of interpersonal communication as a, you know, as a means towards survival, as a means towards peace, uh, and also as a you know, we get frustrated with the fact that we can't really communicate with other species, let alone each other, you know. Um, so that's played out there in, in microcosm, right? It's, it's like the fear of the uh, strange Norwegian army coming coming to to get you when really it's trying to protect you. Yeah. yeah. The men go back into the building and George is being stitched up and they're all trying to figure out why the Norwegians were there. Um, and we find out that the U.S. station has lost communication with all of their contacts. Anybody they try to reach out to is unavailable or they can't reach them. Um, but they're looking through notes or something or, or some sort of information that they had. And they knew that the Norway crew had 10 men. And obviously those two we just saw die. So they think there's eight more and they're about an hour away from where they're at. So they decide they want to go check out what's going on at this other base. And McCready is the pilot who is our main character, Kurt Russell's character, uh, and Dr. Copper. They they go off to investigate, and at this point, the the crew have just been letting the dog hang out with them in the rec room and and everywhere that they are. It's just kind of laying around and doing whatever it feels like. This is a moment where I would be disappointed if I didn't mention something that I thought was amazing in this movie was Kurt Russell's McCready's sense of style, his hat, his <laughs> sunglasses. He just I mean, it's the coolest looking hat I've ever seen. It's unique. <laughs> I mean, who have you ever seen a hat like that before? Because I, I got to get one. <laughs> it looks like Pharrell Williams hat or whatever, right? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, he looks like, a, I don't know, Mexican cowboy or something, right? Like, it's yeah. It's almost like he should be wearing a poncho. No, that, when you when you said that about him being a rebel in, kind of, in like kind of a Western sense, that really fits with his, uh, what, what he's wearing here, right? Yeah. Now, I did, I wanted to say there was a scene as they leave where the uh, camera is looking at them sitting at a ping pong table, I think. And it starts to pan down slowly to the dog. And as it pans down slowly to the dog, the score comes in with it's like, boom, 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 boom. And so it was, it's playing a game with you in a really cool way because you, you start to, this is my first time where I, cause I'm, I don't know. I, I love dogs so much. I wasn't willing to think something was weird with the dog until this moment, because this moment it's like saying there's something creepy about this dog. And, but as soon as it does that, it, it then also cuts away to them, I think, flying in the helicopter to the new place. And so it's kind of playing a game with you. Like you're almost, you almost doubt yourself. You're like, oh, maybe that music was just 
for the next scene and they just started it early and you so you're not a hundred percent sure that they're saying this dog is is creepy or at least i wasn't yeah and i mean you bring up the score um ennio Mor- morcone is a legend and for him to have done this horror film when he's so so well known for these spaghetti westerns um he just brings such gravitas to this to this score and i mean it's kind of it kind of not to take anything away from it but it kind of reminds me of like that jaws the idea that it's like the the simple noises that are like strong in and play like you're saying it, it adds tension immediately to any situation but i just thought he did a great job it's tense and he's he's fantastic yeah totally i was just going to say that too like he worked in the western right so it, it fits with this american frontier kind of theme that's being played out there and especially with mccready he's like he's like half clint eastwood half john wayne you know but also <laughs> but also like a, a hippie in a way too so it's really a an interesting kind of characterization there but but the music is very low i think that's what i was thinking about the score when i watched it last time is this all these low notes and it kind of pulls you down and keeps it you know keeps the gravitas as you said uh it's like things rumble under the surface, you know. The subwoofer is <laughs> challenged by this movie, and I, I think that I think that says something about about the kind of you feel like the muffling of your ears when you're in snow and things like that. There aren't a lot of like high notes, like you're getting psycho or something like that. It, it's all low, 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 and uh, it keeps your heart beating too, you know. Yeah, yeah. uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, sure, and ominous, yeah. So I was going to ask you guys, actually, speaking of Kurt Russell's character, do what do you think that that Carpenter was trying to do with with these characters? Because they seem to be like fairly typical archetypes. Like Kurt Russell's character is <laughs> is kind of that like drunk rebel, like cowboy type character. What do you think that that Carpenter was trying to do with that? Like, what was he trying to articulate with with making? Do you think he was just using archetypes, or do you think he was trying to say something with with? Because I. I felt like other than the fact that he was a rebel, the alcohol, the, him being kind of an alcoholic was kind of just a character trait. Well, <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I do think he, I think that McCready is a character we want to identify with most as the protagonist, right? So a lot of his actions uh, kind of are, are things that a lot of people I think can identify with. They're kind of petty rebellion kind of things. And yet he's a leader. He knows his stuff. He's really the only person who can pilot the helicopter, you know, and we get little short scenes with him kind of talking about the kind of technical aspects of his job with authority, like, you know, oh, the wind's picking up in two hours, Doc, you think I should do that? You know, that kind of thing. And he also connects more, most closely with the uh, Wilford Brimley uh, doctor, you know, just like the Doc in a, in a Western village or something, you know. Um, and so he's given, like, a lot of smarts despite his, uh, you know, streak is <laughs> of rebellion I, I i think we're all the trust gets instilled in him so like later in the movie and i know this is a scene you might have planned to talk about well i, I remember when they, they don't trust gary anymore and they're like who's going to be the leader and somehow mccready ends up with it because the other the people that want it too quickly are like no no we can't trust you we want someone with an even temper or something yeah like child's in that scene child's reaches for it yeah child's reaches for it and and mccready's like nope 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 so yeah. we have to somebody more trustworthy than you and they always have guns on each other too which is another western kind of you know standoff kind of approach to this movie god it's interesting <laughs> it it made me think of uh what's that new uh stranger things um and so you know the the character hopper he is that archetype like machismo officer who his life's a mess and he's an alcoholic and he smokes and like all this stuff right this he's he's a character who's based off of this kind of archetype from the 80s that was so popular and i can i can look for like a like a you know going back to the source this is the kind of character that hopper is and in, in that in that show yeah i mean i don't i haven't watched stranger things unfortunately I, my netflix ran out but <laughs> uh, you should i know i know but uh, I did want to say that, you know, a lot of people look back at, uh, a lot of film critics look back at 80s cinema and talk about the Rambo kind of character and what it says about masculinity in that decade. And I mean, McCready falls right into that. And, you know, and it, you can't watch this movie and not realize it's an all-male cast. <laughs> and it's, it's very much about men. Uh, yeah. And um, I don't know the extent to which Carpenter's directly trying to play with that theme. 
but it, you know, looking back now, I mean, you could totally see. So sure. when you when James asked the question about the whole cast of characters, you know, there there are archetypes, but maybe there are archetypes of you know masculinity or male identity or something like that that reflect their era. Um, again, food for thought. I don't really have any <laughs> claims to make about it. I, I just think it's yeah. it's present and it's something, you know. It almost it it almost seems like a war movie in some senses too, right? Like it almost seems like they're a unit, and with their commander and their doctor, and like they all have like some sort of, and it's actually kind of ambiguous too whether or not there's military stuff going on. To me, it was at least because they do seem to be working for the U.S. government in some way. Um, so yeah, it it almost seems like an army movie in that sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know they're a research uh, team, but they're right. government sponsored, so. You know, ideologically, you know, they are an arm of the government. Uh, sure. So the next thing that I wanted to ask you guys about was with the dog sneaking around and, and kind of just being around in the in the, the camp, in the base, there were a couple times where things happen and we weren't necessarily supposed to know, especially upon like first couple viewings, who exactly certain things, who certain characters were supposed to be in those moments. But there's a moment early on when the dog is walking the halls on its own and it walks into a room and there's you can see the shadow of a figure on the wall. And when the mm-hmm. dog walks in, the shadow reacts. And I was just wondering if you guys thought that that was supposed to be a specific person, if you thought you had puzzled it out and figured out who it was. Or do you think it was just the fact that it was supposed to be like somebody is a, is a thing at this point because the dog got in there when that person was alone? And it's kind of just setting us up to be like not sure about which characters are, which characters aren't. I think it's a specific person. I, I don't know that we're supposed to know who it is in that moment because um, it's very hard to tell. But I have a theory about a character who is revealed later to be a thing, and I think this is the moment he becomes he becomes one. I, I'm not. I don't think we're worried about spoilers, right? Do you want to just do you want to just say who you think it is or? So yeah, I think I think it's Palmer there, uh, who later gets revealed to be a thing. Because otherwise, I don't know when he, when he becomes one. You know, I think this is his moment. Yeah, I can see that because he he's like the one who's like fully formed into a thing, and has been kind of lurking around. And once we find out in that interrogation scene, he's the one who's like made it this far, and then is revealed by the blood. The first one who's revealed by the blood. I have a lot to say about that scene, so let's 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 save that scene for when it happens. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think it. <clears throat> one of the things about that mo- moment is it clearly puts it in the genre of mystery. You know, it's like the shadow knows kind of kind of shot, and uh, you know, it gets us wondering what's going on there between man and animal at that precise moment. Uh, and, and you know that the ca- it basically signals that Carpenter is going to hold back information. You're not going to get direct depiction of things for the rest of the movie. You know, you have to question what you're seeing from that moment forward if you haven't gotten it already with the music on the dog and so forth, uh, you know, and it, and it adds the mystery component to it. And this movie is so paranoid. I mean, yeah. everything, everything is, the characters are paranoid, but Carpenter's trying to make us paranoid. And mm-hmm. I love that. And that's the first moment where that really kicks in. I think. Yeah. I mean, this makes me kind of wish I'd seen this for the first time as an adult in a weird way, because I think kid me didn't maybe didn't pick up on all this stuff. But you don't know, like, something happens in that scene, but then when we return later, that guy, like, nothing seems to have happened. And so then you're left questioning, like, wait, what could have happened there? And I think kid me just blows it off and says, oh, I'll find out eventually, whereas adult me would be more like, you know, my mind would be racing trying to figure out what could have happened. Yeah, I think it also does lead. It does make us question Clark, who the the other the crew really questions Clark early on in the movie, yeah. uh, because he's so close to the dogs, he's always there, you know. And I, I thought it was Clark the first time, you know, because mm. the face the face looked the shadow's face looked a little bit like Clark's to me, yeah. but but ultimately Clark wasn't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, what a movie. I feel, yeah, I feel like Campbell was doing a lot with that. Like he was he, especially using the source material because we know from the from the novel that Gary ended up being one, and in this situation we find out that I mean Gary makes it through to well as far as he doesn't become a thing till he does I guess kind of. <laughs> 
So McCready and Dr. Copper make it to the Norwegian camp and they start searching around. They find holes in the walls, um, a bloody axe through a door, and a trail of blood leading to a man sitting in a chair with his wrists and throat cut. I mean, I have a lot to say about this scene. I, I think you can look at this as a blueprint for what is going to happen to their camp. It, it, every, almost everything here happens to them. The whole camp is on fire, has been burned down. This is what happens in their camp. There's a fire axe like stuck in a door. Like this, that is a scene that happens later. They're running around with fire axes. Clearly, these guys have been like shooting each other and not trusting each other. And I don't know. Like, it, there's just violence everywhere. There's there's signs of violence. They find the creature mass of bodies, whatever it is, um, that's been burned outdoors, right? Which is something they do themselves and try and do. Um, so I thought it was it was really cool because it's he almost puts it all on the table right there and he says this is what's about to happen to them. And um, so I thought it was fun in that way. And the other thing I thought of is that with that big block of ice, that's directly from the novella, right? So though we don't get the ice block in the in this movie, like directly, we get it indirectly. Almost like this camp is in a way kind of what happened more in the novella. I don't know. I, I felt the same way. McCready and, and Dr. Copper are going through this camp and uh, they find documents and tapes and the doctor starts collecting them and McCready keeps keeps um, foraging on and eventually he finds this hollowed out block of ice that you were talking about and as they're as they're like walking out they find this, the charred remains of some sort of creature and they decide to take it back which probably wasn't the best decision but <laughs> I mean somebody had to you know somebody had to deal with this creature eventually because we come to find out that it's still alive or their cells that are still alive in it. Yeah, and I want to let Mike talk here in a second, but it 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 um it is the same as the body that's found in the block of ice in the novella. That becomes the body that's found at this found at the camp for them. It's the same. It, it serves the same function. This movie is really interesting to me that um, it has this early scene, like you said. It's every the camp is devastated, and as Luke's words, a blueprint for what might happen to the the camp for the main storyline. You know, a lot of horror stories use this where even if it's just like a serial killer story, you'll see somebody killed early in the book or in the movie brutally. And that keeps you paranoid for the remainder because, you know, it could happen again and it might get worse. So it's a classic structure of horror right there. The other part of that is that like the block of ice is symbolic to me of the past. Come, You know, the past has been excavated here. And if you just think about this movie in terms of all the other past texts that led up to it, right? So, like, it's not only a novella. I mean, there's the Howard Hawks 1950-whatever, 52 version of the movie, The Thing from Another World. Uh, and, you know, Carpenter has to make a movie that will entertain people who are familiar with both those preceding texts. And to me, that's, like, metaphorically a little bit of what's happening here. As a remake, it's staging its anxiety about past texts haunting the present and kind of like, and then it becomes a shapeshifter story, right? So like, this is a shapeshifting text and that's why we could have a prequel in 2011. 2011 and games and, you know, adaptations. And I mean, it's going to live forever because it's one of these texts that has this kind of iconic structure that, and, and an open-ended world behind what we're given here. This is just a snippet of the alien's existence, really, that we get to see as it struggles to survive. So I don't know. I just think, like, there's something about this story, this premise, that's malleable in, in itself a shape-shifting text. And uh, that's part of what's happening here on a very subtle level, I know. But I'm really fascinated by the way uh, remakes and films like that kind of deal with the past. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you bring up the fact that this is a remake, and I would I would pose that this is one of, I think it's my favorite remake of all time. I can't think of one that was remade that I enjoy as much as I enjoy this one. This It's better. I mean, I've seen the 51 film, and this is just better in every way, in my opinion. Uh, there's so much to be said for that film, especially during the era that it came out, but this is just like so much of what I personally enjoy in a film. So they bring the creature into the camp, and it has like two faces and they're, they're kind of looking mm. at it and it's all uh, deformed and mutated looking. And Gary tells Blair, Gary, the commander tells Blair, the, the doctor kind of uh, to start an autopsy, or I guess he's more of a scientist than a doctor. And 
Blair finds that the creature has the same internal organs as a normal human. Um, and during that kind of autopsy period, the, the rest of the men are, are in the rec room and George is bit under the table by the dog, uh, which, and then George is like, we well, put this dog up and why is it even out here still? Which is a good question. Wait, wait, wait. You, you said he was bit? Uh, yeah, I think so. I didn't think I, I didn't think he was bit. I thought he was just startled by him. Like he was sitting there and then the dog ran under the table and he just kind of went like, ugh. Like I thought he was just startled. Maybe it doesn't matter, but. Well, that's a good question. I never even thought of it because I mean, I've seen it so many times. I just always assumed he was bit there. But you might be right because because later on it doesn't uh, really. If he was already bit and like infected or something, I would it think they'd be sense. more paranoid about him being infected or something, right? Yeah, if he had been bit. So, George asks Clark to put the dog away. So Clark takes the dog in, puts it with all the other dogs, and this is what I was talking about with the dog acting. The dog goes in and stares at the wall and just lays there, head oh, up, yeah. while the other dogs are all so laying weird. down on their side. So weird. And then we get some of the best practical effects. <laughs> yeah before we get to the practical effects as someone who has dogs and knows dogs like those are all really well trained because they they introduce a new dog into a pen that there's like five dogs laying down in the, the dogs don't react at all they all just lay there looking at it and like that's such a like that's such a hard thing to do these dogs have to be so well trained it was amazing to me that that they could all just sit there and act like no big deal and you know almost on command start to get freaked out I love that scene too. I mean, it really, that's where the movie starts to go over the top, you know, and uh, which I love about this movie. It just goes places. (laughs) No movie goes. Uh, But, or a couple things, right? So like, A, symbolically, okay? These animals trapped in a cage. That's exactly what the camp is. So it's it's another little microcosm of the story uh that's just like a you know it's it's setting up our another blueprint for us to think about people tearing each other up to survive the thing about that scene that sticks with me most though is where the dogs are literally pulling the chain link off with their jaws ah let me out of here kind of thing i don't know how realistic that is but it's it it might be go back to that humorous side luke that you were talking about before i thought it was funny i laughed when i <laughs> I I I, uh, I did not find it funny. I felt I thought, bad. I yeah, that absolutely could happen. Yeah. Well, I have a dark sense of humor, but <laughs> um, I just it seemed preposterous that they literally use their teeth to get out. Unless it unless it pulled away the first time, then they do it right. Like I can see a dog trying that, but it's almost like methodical the way that dog is picking apart the chain link, and I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I bought it. I, 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 especially if like the, yeah, it was damaged there in some way. Um, I mean, they'll, they'll, I mean, animals will gnaw their own legs off to get free of traps and stuff. So it's, it could be that kind of thing. It's really showing the desperation of these animals in this moment. And that, that to me, it hit home. Like I believed it. Yeah. So basically what happens is the dog is just laying there and then it starts kind of vibrating and growling and then it splits open and starts shooting out tentacles and spraying stuff on the dog face and, peels back off yeah, of its skull there's like <laughs> muscle and flesh and blood everywhere and and it's it starts to get just so grotesque and as it's kind spider of spider legs shoot out of the sides of it yeah <laughs> i have to point out these things it was it was so it's so cool yeah, and I, what's crazy to me is that like somebody thought of that, and then they implemented yeah. it into some sort of rig that would that would you know it's amazing, and so uh, Clark overhears the commotion and goes back to check out what's going on, and the dogs, some of the dogs kind of run out, and he's able to shut the creature in there, and and McCready from across the way hears the commotion and pulls the fire alarm and then runs over. So there's also like a thousand little like tentacly things that shoot out of it everywhere and start like wrapping up the dogs and stuff. And there's a sound, and I, I don't know if you guys can identify what the sound is that they play, but it, it sounds very much like insects or something to me. Like there's a there's a certain sound they play that's very unsettling, and it's when these like all these little tentacles are in the air, like a hissing, like you're saying, like insect yeah. hissing, like all these noises. And, and that's another thing, the sound design of these like to have created these noises. I'm sure they're blending like you know like elephants and cows and like all these different animals to make (laughs) these noises but i mean yeah it it came out really well yeah it's just so over the top the sound makes it uh you know it makes it believable and yet so unbelievable (laughs) you know (laughs) uh that's 
these creatures every time every time you see the thing in transition it's it's like a werewolf yeah. story the cool the cool part of a werewolf movie is whenever the guy turns into a werewolf you know uh the the, the display of the, the hair growing on skin and here it's the same sort of thing but i think you know uh carpenter's going way out of his way to make it unlike a werewolf movie so that like i mean little you know a dog turning into this spider-headed venus flytrap bodied thing uh it's indescribable it's lovecraftian you know like mm. like in lovecraft stories the prose goes crazy and over the top in an attempt to represent the unrepresentable alien species and in here we get like the costuming and the, and the, and the special effects and everything's constructing this weirdness that has a slight believability in terms of its organic use value you know like it needs to crawl away so it spits out these arms and later in the story you know it's logically explained that the alien must have visited all these planets and absorbed all these different species so that's what's going on here is it's just this mix of different genetic uh, compounds and it can summon them at will and yet it's so chaotic uh, <laughs> you know so i guess without that survival need to get the hell out of the cage uh it panics and so it's just really interesting to yeah. think about how logical is this how is it just out to be gross i don't think so you know every little piece has a meaningfulness to it and uh i like that i mean and with all the meaning it has it still is gross like it still is like to me it was like uh so this this scene i think is being intercut with them doing the autopsy right like they're kind of happening at the same time and until they get called over there's a little bit of overlap i think i think one leads into the other and the autopsy scene we didn't even really talk about it is really disgusting and it's 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 so good though and it's this like i i call it body horror in that it it's it's like this is us this is a regular body however you can look at it and see how freakish and monstrous it's become and that immediately is unsettling because I don't know. It's just like we we all know our own bodies, and we can recognize that something is so horribly wrong with the body on the table. It's it, I don't know. Is that is that uncanny, Mike? Is that is that would you call it that, or is that something different? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we just we project our own kind of body anxieties into these body horror. I think some, you know, some people are squeamish about one body part. Others are squeamish about another. Uh, you know, the, the film theorists who talk about body horror, you know, look at it as like desires that we have, you know. So like often these gross out bodies in monster movies <clears throat> might have sexual qualities through a lens darkly, you know, so that it might look like a phallic symbol or, you know, a woman's body parts or something. Mm -hmm. um, and that somehow the mix of that with the disgusting quality makes us really disturbed on a deep level psychologically. Like we want to see it, but we want to look away, that kind of thing. And that's, that's the theory, the psychoanalytic theory behind this stuff. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, it's just the body in extremis and it's an alien body. It's partly our body. So <clears throat> really what Carpenter's kind of doing is alienating ourselves from our own bodies. Um, and the power of the creature is that it, it can become us, right? So, you know, it has more control over its body than we do, except when it's between bodies. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and he's also setting up the dog scene, right? Because we see this monstrosity and, and clearly something is horribly wrong with it. And then now when the dog goes through its transformation, we can see that this is clearly what was happening with this other thing. Like, this is all the same thing. I don't know. It's, it's So narratively, I think it also serves a purpose in that way, right? Is that the autopsy scene where uh, a head goes up on a stalk? Not yet. Not no, yet. that's that's a, that's a second autopsy scene that happens later. That's that's they amazing. They all blur together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and this also sets the table for that because this is a safe autopsy relatively. It's gross, but nothing actually happens to the person doing the autopsy. So maybe a false sense of security is set up here for when we get the second autopsy later. Mike, you brought up the Lovecraftian nature of, of the things that are going on here. And I actually read something online that was talking about this was like the beginning of Carpenter's like three, his trilogy of Lovecraftian um, like ideals, I guess, in his films. Um, have you seen the film Prince of Darkness? Yeah, I was just thinking about that right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then also uh, the film In the Mouth of Madness. 
That one totally. <laughs> yeah. So these, uh, I was reading online that the theory is that like he was he was approaching these it like I fit I guess in this film tentatively and then and then further in in the next couple of films that that he like developed as passion projects and kind of leaned into that Lovecraftian nature of of characters or scenarios and and like kind of the the big thinking of what was going on in those films they're not connected but at the same time they're spiritually connected right i think the other two movies you mentioned are more about like the cult side of like the cthulhu cult you know and uh (laughs) how man will kind of subordinate itself to a higher power even when it's evil (laughs) but uh but with this movie it's it's the monsters you know it's just fascinated by the monstrosity of it all and the cosmic horror i mean this one is directly that's why we get this spaceship in the opening credit you know, we have to be told this is a, this is a space creature from another planet and it's not from the core of the earth or something like that right. uh, so, so i mean and, and you know I'm, I'm curious if you guys like when did campbell write who goes there was that in the 50s 1938 wow Okay, so he he must have read Lovecraft, or at least thought about these kind of issues too, um, and maybe maybe ported it into a more sciencey realm, if you know what I mean. Because uh, I I don't think how I don't see how any writer in the twenties and thirties could not have read weird tales and written science fiction, fantasy, or horror. I just can't imagine it, because um, that was one of their markets, if anything, right? Um, hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Is there a Lovecraftian influence in, in Campbell's novella? I, I can't answer that question, but maybe. So yeah, these these dogs are are being attacked by the thing in the cage, and it begin. It feels like it's starting to, I guess, be attacked because all the men are running up and seeing what's going on, and they're flashing flashlights at it. So it does this thing where yeah. it like splits in two, right? Like the arms reach up into the ceiling and like pull up a yeah. piece of the of the creature up into the ceiling. And around that time, a uh, child shows up with a flamethrower. And although they had been shooting the creature, it didn't seem to have the effect that they wanted it to. So they torched it with the flamethrower. And that seemed to do the trick for now. Yeah, I, I don't know that... Does anyone even see that happen? Because no one remarks on the fact that like part of this creature went up into the roof. So it seems to be that no one saw it. But I, the whole time, was sitting there going... Because, okay, we can. Th- I want to hear your guys' theories about where this thing goes eventually. But to my knowledge, we don't see that thing again until maybe later in the movie. I, I think it has to be the, the kind of end game. That's kind of what we see at the end. Like, although, okay. yeah. Think that's what I thought, too. That's what I think. <clears throat> yeah, I remember the first time I saw that movie when I was a kid in the theater. I was like, did I miss something? How is, how is all this underground tunnel uh, being built? In this? Remember, I... Spoiler again, right at the end. But there's this underground network that ostensibly the thing has been building the whole time. So it must be that escaped fugitive early version. Uh, But it's implied that it's like Blair who went under the floorboards of his little prison cell. Yeah, that's the I I wanted. I definitely want to talk about that at the end because I was a little confused about how that all goes down. Just very briefly in this scene, uh, you know, that we're talking about. Flames are used really in a dominant way. It's like, like I think Luke was saying, it's the way that they put it down, right? And right. there's so much fire in this movie. It's, it's like, it's always a primitive thing, right? Fire. And it, it, fire and dynamite are the only kind of things that can combat the alien in this movie. They can't outwit each other. They resort to the, they have to resort to caveman kind of ways to survive. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that, that's, clearly uh you know carpenter making a comment here about survival and maybe if we go back to the war concept that we you know we be, we become beasts to uh to survive that's a departure from the novella as well because in the novella the thing that they can consistently use is like a pair of wires that electrocutes oh. they keep coming up with this little isn't it's that a right, ca- yeah they like a cable with... they got some sort of some sort of like um helicopter or something rig cable yeah, and they they use it to like electrify the thing, and it, like turns it into like a rubber or something. And so that's interesting that that's almost a reversal because that's almost technology being used against it in a sci-fi story, whereas this is a horror story and it's more primitive than that. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so after they torch it, uh, Blair ends up doing an autopsy on this as well, and I think this is what you guys were talking about, where he's pulling it apart, and there's like a 
there's like a face within it like he pulls back the flesh and he's like really grossed out by it but there's like some sort of like face and he this is when he realizes like this is kind of dog-like this is not and he's like this this is obviously imitation and this is when they realize that like it's becoming something that it it wasn't at first and and fully trying to imitate this this dog and um it, he he talks autopsy about, scene I had forgotten about. Yeah, well, it's it, I think what the scene that you guys are talking about isn't necessarily an autopsy, but what it is is when they're giving CPR to to um one of the characters. Oh yeah, that's the yeah that's the final one. The men start watching these tapes that that the Doctor Copper had brought back, and they're seeing like this this crazy dig site that that the Norwegians were were digging in, and they McCready decides that they need to visit the site where the Norwegians had been spending most of their time. So. They hop in the, the helicopter, they fly over there, and they find the spaceship that had been crashed for and the guy theorizes that based on the ice that it's been a hundred it's been there for a hundred thousand years and nearby they find this dug up section of, of ice where they, they think that the creature was launched out of the ship and froze there in the in that spot until he was dug up by the Norwegians. It's interesting because in the in the novella it was twenty million years. So this is a big reduction, and I, I'm just curious, do you think there's any reason? Did did you think maybe Carpenter thought 100,000 was more believable? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, I think 20 million is like, for it to have been frozen there, I guess just thinking of like the earth heating and cooling, and I don't know, I don't know. Mm. I'm That's just, a th- who, who knows? That's maybe just it's improbable. That's true, yeah, I don't know. No <laughs> <laughs> So when McCready, when they get back, they they're relaying all this information of the spaceship and everything that they found uh, to the rest of the crew. And the cook Nalls brings uh, this torn up, raggedy looking uh, garment of some kind, and he says like somebody threw it out in the trash. And it's just a throwaway thing at first, but it'll be a clue later on. Obviously, Blair starts running these computer sim- simulations, and he finds it, which is very interesting because this must be a very powerful computer for 1982. Uh, he's running simulations of, of, I guess, whether or not something could assimilate and completely clone something else. And then also he runs the percentage on whether or not any of the crew members are already a thing. And then also it would, he finds out that it would only take 27,000 hours to fully assimilate the whole world, which I, I did the math and it, it equates to like three years. (laughs) Yeah. So it says 75%. 75% likely. <laughs> I love Very that scene. even number. <laughs> to me, that scene is so kind of wonky because, like, what what algorithm did he use to, to determine 75%? And it, it really depends on our, or in the 1980s kind of culture, you know, faith in computers being able to do anything. It, it's really uh, silly. And at the same time, you know, they show him holding a pencil. He's drinking Jim Beam or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's very like he's old school scientist, but he's doing this strange math with this computer, um, which doesn't really hold up now. You know, you look at those screens and it dates it immediately. That, that's always the problem with using computers in the films, I think. Is it immediately dates the film. The, uh, the, the cell assimilation uh, that's going on looks to me looks like the game Asteroid. Like that, I always think of that. It looks like it's like, except for it's absorbing, but it looks kind of like the game Asteroid. Yeah, you know, it's so slow moving. It mm-hmm. does build up the tension. Like, what can this cell really do? But it's it might as well be drawing stick figures. You know, it's so it's so silly. Um, Speaking of the longevity of this of this uh, franchise, I would want to see a movie about those three years. If this because if this thing gets out and it's going to take three years to take over the world. Why not? Let's make that into a movie, right? Let's let's see what this looks like in the. You know what I mean? Because we, I mean, obviously it would have to be a big budget movie, but let's bring this thing out into a city and see what yeah. happens. Brilliant! Give this man a million dollars. Make that movie. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> Brilliant idea. All right, that's going to be it for part one of our talk with Mike Arnson. In part two, coming to you Monday, we get into the infamous wire in the blood scene. Yeah, I'm really happy with, with how that came out, too. We touched on a lot of the stuff that I, I thought was really important. Yeah, make sure you check that out. We wanted to let you know that if you would like to connect with Mike Arnzen, you can use you can go to uh, follow him on Twitter, at Mike Arnzen, and that's A-R-N-Z-E-N. And his website is gorlitz.com. 
G-O-R-E-L-E-T-S. And if you would like to read any of his books, you can find them on Amazon or other online retailers. Yeah, and if you wanted to connect to us, Ink to Film, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Ink to Film, and also our website, inktofilm.com. Yeah, and the best way to support this podcast is to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever uh, platform you use to listen. Uh, a review like this one from CC Gator on iTunes. A great podcast that has a specific goal of analyzing books and their film adaptations. This podcast has inspired me to pick up the book, go see the movie, and listen along. That's awesome. Thanks, CC Gator. We wanted to go ahead and announce our next project is going to be Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. I'm super excited about it. Uh, the anime by Hayao Miyazaki is one of my favorites. We'll be covering that after we finish reading the book. Yeah, anything Hayao Miyazaki does, I love. So I'm really excited to jump into that. I've never read the novel. I don't think you have either, right? Nope. All new. So yeah, it'll be cool to, to see where that world came from. So if you wanted to get ahead of the game and leave, leave us feedback, you can actually send us an email at inktofilm at gmail.com and send us ideas for future projects or your take on the, the film or novel, How It Was Moving Castle. Yeah, and if it has like a deep personal me connection with you, something like that, let us know. We also wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And we wanted to thank Audible. Uh, if you wanted to get a free title, you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film, get 30 free days, get a free credit. Maybe uh, go ahead and get that book by Diana Wynne-Jones. All right, we'll see you for part two. I'm Luke. And I'm James. Bye.